The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the elders here. Um, really grateful to be here this morning to uh, kind of stand in the place of Pete, our lead pastor, who's uh, getting kind of a unique opportunity to have the weekend off with his family and uh, Sabbath in a, in a different way this weekend, which is, which is good, which is good for him. And grateful to, uh, to be able to do that. So um, if this is your first time and I haven't met you, uh, come on up and say hi afterwards. I'd love to meet you. And then also remember, if you're checking out Holy Cross, give us another shot because I'm not the main guy. So if I disappoint <laughs> you, you know, please come back. Um, got a lot of family here this morning, which is really exciting and encouraging for me. Um, so needless to say, I should hear a lot of amens this morning when I'm preaching. So um, yeah, we're in the middle of... Uh, a series through First Peter, like we talked about. We're about halfway through the series, and um, so before I get, get started with today's text and sermon, I wanted to just recap on a few things we've been going through, um, just revisit them, um, especially from Pete's sermon last week. Um, we just kind of figured we would uh, try the subliminal approach and just saturate you with Peter's, so you'd get the idea. There's Pete, <laughs> we're preaching through Peter, and, and I'm Peter, so um, that's kind of our approach here, I guess. Um, so uh, we're in the middle of kind of a four-week segment in First Peter where we're talking about submission to authority. So last week, um, uh, Peter addresses our call to submit to the earthly authority figures in our lives, which he calls our human institutions. Um, specifically, last, pe- last week, Pete addressed our call to submit to the role of government in our life. Uh, this week, we're looking at uh, more localized and looking at our submission to our bosses in the workplace. And then for the following two weeks after this, Pete will be back and he'll be bringing us through what the idea of submission looks like in the home. Um, so one thing that Pete said last week was that there are three spheres of life that, that uh, God has ordained in our life in which we are, we are called to practice godly submission. And those are the government, the, uh, the church, and the family. So those are the three spheres of life where we need to practice godly submission. And um, so the premise kind of for this whole four-week session is, uh, section is essentially the same. So I wanted to recap a direct quote from Pete last week that's kind of like a governing premise for this section. He said, In every instance of our submission, we are commanded to do so as an expression of our allegiance to the Lord. And this submission we're called to comes out of the very heart of who Jesus is in relationship to his Father. Jesus serves as the perfect example of good submission, beautiful, wholesome, right, and true submission. So this is essentially the same message I have for you today as we move from looking at submitting to government and those constructs as a whole to the more direct relationship we have with our earthly masters. But before we get started, there's one more thing I want to touch on from last week because I won't really be revisiting it today, and that's the idea of godly rebellion. Um, because you, that may be a question you have in your mind, is do we just submit at all times? And, and Pete addressed this last week, and he said that there is a limit to the power that our earthly institutions have over us, and that's specifically when they mandate or call us into sin, to call us to sin. And so in that case, we are not bound to submit or to obey the order to, to, uh, to sin, but rather compelled to resist and to, uh, to honor God in that way. And I just wanted to bring that up because uh, I won't be address- readdressing that today. So in other words, 
when I speak to you today about obeying masters, um, I didn't want you to think that I was ignoring that or negating that fact. So I wanted to kind of build on that groundwork there. And um, all right, let's get to the text. We're in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'll be reading from the ESV version. This is God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, or steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So as we move through today's sermon, I just wanted to kind of break it down into three kind of main movements that we're going through. So the first one is identifying a roadblock. So I think that there's potentially a roadblock here in this text that could be kind of a distraction, I feel like, if we don't address it first. So we're going to do that. Next, we're going to identify the audience. Who's he talking to? Who does this apply to? And then the last thing is the lesson. What's the lesson in the teaching here for us? So the first thing, the roadblock I wanted to address is um, kind of the idea of servants and slaves. Um, because when you hear the relationship of servant to master being addressed here, there might be one word that comes to mind. And if you're, if you're reading in the NIV version, which is not what I read from, or maybe other versions, that's, that word is translated as slave. So <clears throat> I know that that word has a ton of deserved baggage to it, and so I think it's worth addressing that. So um, when we read the word servant here, we need to realize that it's talking about a type of servitude as slavery, but it, it needs some clarifying, and there's some, some good, well-researched reasons why it's translated as servant rather than slave in, um, in these versions. Um, there's a few things I wanted to go through on the topic before we move on, just so that, yeah, it doesn't create a roadblock for us here. But uh, the first thing would be just the context. What does first century slavery look like in comparison to the image and the background we have in our mind? And then the second thing we need to address out there is uh, do passages like these that we come across in the Bible mean that the Bible condones or permits slavery? So I think those are two questions we want to we want to go through before. You maybe have heard that accusation brought against the Bible before or even been curious about that yourself. So um, we know that there's been times in history when people have thought that, people have made that claim, and there's probably even people today who, who still do. So um, first, what's the cultural context regarding bond servants and slavery in the first century? Um, obviously, I'm... I'm a firefighter, I'm not an expert on this. So uh, let me read to you from uh, Wayne Grudem's commentary on this passage. Um, he's got his PhD from Cambridge, 
He was the general editor of the translation of the ESV version directly from the group, uh, from the Greek, sorry. Um, so he's, he's pretty qualified here. He's, here's what he says. He says, but the horrible degradation of slaves in the 19th century America gives the word slave a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society to which Peter was writing. Although mistreatment of slaves could occur then too, it must be remembered that first century slaves were generally well treated and were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions, such as doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. There was extensive Roman legislation regarding or regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could, eventually, ex could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. So I just read that to kind of point out that in this we do see that there was a difference to the construct that he was speaking into from the image that a lot of times we have in our mind of uh, our experience with slavery. Um, was there injustice and mis mistreatment still at this time? Yes. Was the institution overall a good thing? No. Did they have economic and legal freedom like we do today? No. They, they didn't. Um, but this context, I feel, definitely, definitely helps us. Um, he, goes, he goes on to say that although our freedom, or their freedom was different than ours, the parallel between this population and the modern day employee is actually a, a reasonable one to make. So when he's speaking to servants there, we can draw the parallel to today's workplace and being an employee. So that's an important thing to know. Um, so the next thing we wanted to talk about, when we see slavery mentioned and spoken into in the Bible, does that mean that the Bible justifies slavery? Does that mean that it permits it and says it's okay? And so just to answer simply, let me assure you that the answer to this question is a resounding no. It does not. The call and the power of the gospel is radically antithetical to slavery and all other evils like it. There are other scriptures in the New Testament where we see that slaves are encouraged to gain their freedom when they have the possibility to do so. In other places, the masters are specifically addressed. They're spoken to directly and told to lead with the same respect and honor and submission to Christ that the, that the servants are spoken to, reminding them that Christ served them and died for them. <clears throat> the gospel, the message, the core message of the gospel completely cuts the legs out from underneath any motive or justification for slavery existing. And that's why today, I just, it's important to say, more than ever, the church should be passionate and active in spreading the gospel and working hard to be in the fight against slavery that still exists because we know it certainly still does. So we need to be involved in that. With that being said, uh, it's important for us to remember also what the purpose was of Peter's writing here. So Peter had a purpose with his writing. And uh, what he's doing here is he's writing to a group of Christians scattered all around, gathering in homes, in, as families and as households, gathering together in homes. And he's, showing, he's actually showing the dignity and respect that he has for these servants by addressing them directly. So at this time, uh, writings and leaders, they wouldn't even address slaves they'd, or servants. They'd address masters directly. So he's showing, he's elevating their dignity by addressing them. And, uh, and he's reminding them of the profound, immediate, and practical impact the gospel truth has on their life and situation.
what he's not doing here is he's not writing philosophically. He's not writing as a, with the purpose of a general critique about his social constructs. But rather, he's showing us that there's no small or menial corner that the gospel doesn't speak truth and life and hope into for each individual. So, anyways, I hope that helps a little bit with a little bit of context. Uh, it's important for us to remember that when we come across some of these difficult contextual spots in the Bible, not to immediately philosophize or curiositize, if you will, our way out of uh, the accountability that it calls us to. But I think sometimes we can, it's good to be curious, it's good to look into them and look in deeply, but if we let that stop us from getting the personal message to us, that's not a good thing. Um, so the next thing you might be asking is, okay, if he's speaking to first century servants, what does that have to do with me? How does that relate to me now? So specifically here, he's speaking into the servant-master relationship, uh, which like we just saw can be a par easily paralleled to the worker-boss relationship of today. Um, many of you know, like I just said, that uh, vocationally I'm a firefighter paramedic. So my experience with the worker-boss relationship here might be a little different than the average one in the room um, because it's a, what's called a paramilitary type of structure. Um, <clears throat> those of us that have the public safety or paramilitary type of background know that there's a very explicit chain of command and layering of masters, if you will, in our, uh, through our captains and chiefs and whatnot. So the relationship is, is a little bit more direct for, uh, for me with this background. But um, there's even, actually in the fire service, maybe you don't know this, there's actually a pretty visual distinct relationship between who's the employee and who's like the, the manager. It's actually visually broken down into blue collar and white collar, literally because every rank below battalion chief, captain, and field personnel wear blue shirts, and then from a battalion chief and up, they wear white shirts. So it's just a representation of these cultures kind of showing that, um, as you're well aware, in military, submission to authority is a big deal, and it's a big part of that, that culture. Um, but I understand that this may not, this may not be the, the type of structure you work within. Maybe you're a realtor or an independent contractor or um, maybe you're a boss yourself or a CEO or an owner of a company. <clears throat> what I want to do, if you think about the idea of master in the sense of someone or something that you are accountable to and could potentially suffer unjustly from at times, then you can see that this still applies, applies to you even if you don't have the direct chain of command in your, in your experience. Um, <clears throat> So like even though if you don't have a uh, direct supervisor, I'm sure that you still have a legal system that you need to abide by. You have industry standards that are in a sense your master governing your work. Um, you have your clientele, which in a sense is, is your master. You have to serve them and um, suffer from them sometimes. <laughs> you have uh, the legal system and the trade regulations governing your body of work. So, we don't have to look very far to extrapolate this out into where it actually does affect us, where we're accountable to require, be required to submit at times. But here's another thing that's important for us to realize here, is that even though he's speaking to a specific audience, he's using their very literal and practical situation to exemplify a general principle that applies to all, to everyone. So he starts with a specific example and expands that into the, the bigger general setting. 
If we look at verse 21 from what I just read, uh, it says, For to this you have been called. So this is the point where he's expanding the focus and talking about a call that's based on a collective identity. So he's talking to a collective group of people, not just a specific group within that group, but the whole group. He's writing this letter to the church, like we talked about earlier in, in the earlier passages, the people of God, the elect exiles, saying to this group that this spirit of submission, even to wicked masters, is a call for everyone. Because you're part of God's people, you're called to respond in a certain way to suffering and being treated unfairly. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's look at that next. How, how exactly are we called to submit? What is the actual teaching of this passage? What does it teach us about that idea? We're instructed to be subject to our earthly masters, a human institution that we mentioned last week, with all respect. So that's the way in which we're called to submit is with all respect to the good and the bad. So basically think about it like this. We're being reminded to love our enemy, something we're all familiar with, in the context of that enemy being our boss. Sometimes we think of it in a general way and forget in our real life relationships that that person in a sense could be an enemy for us uh, in the way we feel, but we're called to love them. When he says here all respect, when he says submit to them with all respect, the word he uses here is phobos, which is actually the Greek word for fear, if you can think of, reminds you of the word phobia. But um, from my research here, the sense of this original word is not really talking about fear in the sense of punishment or bodily harm or um, what, what we a lot of times associate fear with, um, but rather as an awareness of the weight of the office they hold in a desire to please them and be about their pleasure and their good. So it's an awareness of the weight that office holds. So that's why it's translated as respect. But our modern day vision of respect is a lot different, isn't it? We don't think of respect typically like that. Usually we come from a position of expecting people to deserve or earn our respect first before we give it. We get an idea, we, we work, and we, we're always the expert, right, you know, of someone else's job. That's how it is at the fire service a lot of times. Um, but we get the idea of if we were in their shoes, what we would do and what they ought to do with the opportunity that they have. Or we compare them to other bosses we've had. And we sit back and we kind of make ourselves the leadership critique patrol. Um, but we're told here to have an innate respect for this institution because it exists apart from how well or how poorly it's fulfilled. Beyond that, we're told that our submission to our authority will sometimes take the form of unjust suffering. <clears throat> but we're not commanded here to simply endure for the sake of enduring alone. It's not just for the sake of enduring only. We're told that the kind of enduring that is pleasing and honoring to God is the one that's done in a certain way not just brute force and, and accomplished, but in a certain way, with a certain belief and posture guiding it. Let's look at verse 19 that we went through. For this is a gracious thing. And when he says that, when this is a gracious thing, it means that this is a thing that is pleasing to God, that God honors and appreciates. It says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So it says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
That's the stipulation he places on the way in which we're supposed to submit, to do so while being mindful of God. And that's what's different about this than just becoming a doormat. You may wonder, like, okay, if I'm submitting, am I just willingly making myself a doormat? Do I have any say in anything? But we're not called to be an unimportant, used-up, inanimate object, but rather to actively and intentionally maintain a posture of humble respect, even when it's not deserved. Peter goes on in the second half of our passage to show us what this looks like. He gives us a picture of what this actually looks like. Just like he's done over and over throughout, we're only in the middle of chapter 2 and he's done this already at least three or four times. He's, yeah, he does this by, sorry, by spelling out the gospel for us. This is what he's done over and over. He's reminding us that the gospel is what gives us the ability to be mindful of God in these contexts. What's the reason we should submit with respect to our bosses? Because of the gospel. So we're called to be gospel-centered in our servitude, in our submission. And, and basically I see in his instruction here four inter- interdependent parts to what that actually looks like here, to gospel-centered service and submission. We're called to submit, one, because of the gospel, two, in the pattern of the gospel, three, in the power of the gospel, and four, for the glory of the gospel. So that's the four interdependent parts to gospel-centered submission. So number one, because of the gospel. Verse 21 here, if, if you look at the text, is the division that marks the move from Peter's mandate or his instruction to how we should act and behave for us to the, to the source or kind of the how and why of why we should do what he's telling us to do. It says, like we said before, for to this you have been called. So the recipients of this letter and us today are a specific people, like we said, a specific people with a specific call. Remember what we've seen in earlier passages in the four or five weeks prior to this. When you, sub- when you believe and trust in the gospel, you are a new people. You have a new identity. This message that Peter continually puts forth is news. There's a difference there. It's unique that it's news. It's not just good advice or a, another religious method. It's a claim, it's a radical claim about who we are and what we've done and who God is and what He's done. It's the claim that He is holy and loving and that we are sinners, but God, because of His great love and grace, saved us from our sin by sending Jesus to live perfectly and suffer God's judgment for sin, for our sin, in our place while dying on the cross. In verse 24 it says, He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter right there is reminding us that when you hear and affirm this news, you become something new. Another good passage that puts this into perspective is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Maybe you've heard this before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So who is he calling to submit to these bosses, to their bosses? He's calling people who know and believe the gospel. 
When he calls us to submit while being mindful of God, he's saying, let your faith in who God is and what he's done permeate your mind so much, like because of this good news you believe, let it profoundly affect your interactions with your authority. So it's because of the gospel that we are commanded to act this way. The next point for this morning is we're told to do so in the pattern of the gospel. So because we've been saved by the gospel and become a new people, we should submit to our leadership emulating the pattern of the gospel. So what is that? What is the pattern of the gospel? What does that even mean? Let's look at verse 21 through 23 again. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he was on earth, he faced all kinds of different evils. Even though he was the only one who rightly deserved respect and honor at all times. And in the face of that, facing this evil, something he didn't deserve, he never sinned. Here I'm reminded of actually what Ryan already referenced this morning. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible where Paul calls us in this way regarding this pattern. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So I think that why this is such a powerful voice, uh, verse is because, I mean, can't we all agree? Don't you, doesn't it just drive you nuts when you see someone walking around with a really pompous sense of entitlement? You know, I think, I think we can all agree on that. When, when they walk around like everyone owes them something. And I think the reason this bugs us so much deep down is that we know, and we also think that they should know, that they can't deserve all of what they're asking for. And the other thing is, it really touches our pride, too. It touches us deep down inside um, because we know we have a hard time seeing people seek glory because deep down we know we really want the glory. So it's, it's hard for us to see that. But here in this passage, we're shown a different way. That's why this passage is so amazing to me, because it really convicts me. It touches me at my core, because I know how guilty of that I can be. So Jesus, the only one who could rightly actually be entitled, laid it all down to serve evil, undeserving people, specifically people who hated him, in order to save them giving them something they didn't deserve, they didn't even know they needed. Jesus has profoundly served us in his life and death when we didn't deserve it because of his ultimate submission to his Father, like we talked about. And this is the pattern that we're called to follow, a pattern of humble and willing service, even if and when it's at our expense. And when we do so, we display an image of him in his gospel. Out of reverence for God, we're called to be willing servants, to love those who hate, to serve those who don't deserve it, so that we can be an image of him. 
Will we fail at this? Of course, absolutely. I do all the time. So thank God that the, the gospel is not just simply a model to follow, but also a power. So we're called to submit and serve in the power of the gospel. Like I just said, the gospel is not simply a model. It definitely does show us a pattern that we should emulate, but it's much more. If we spoke of it only as that, we would be reducing the gospel to something that it's not. If we think of the gospel and the behavior of Jesus only as a model, we dramatically reduce it from good news to good advice, like I mentioned earlier. And here's the thing about that. <clears throat> that makes it just like any other system in the world, no different at all. A standard for achieving our identity and goodness through our behavior. There's nothing different or radical about that. We'll look at verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Even when we fail at living this out. We are his, and that's a secure position. And that's not dependent on our continued faults and failures, which we know will be many. And that truth is powerful. It doesn't say, notice the word choice here in this, it doesn't say that the gospel has power over our, our bodies and our physical lives, but it says it has power over our souls. Our soul returns to our shepherd and overseer. So it's saying that we have been reconciled to and filled with a power that transcends earthly life itself. And that provides a security that can't be matched by anything that this world offers. And that, like I said, is profoundly powerful. So it's, it's this power in us, this, the power of this truth, this power working within us, that gives us the security, strength, peace, and permission to both obey and to disobey when it's right and necessary, and not let the fear of the, the consequences rule over us. There's something else powerful it does too, and that's <clears throat> the gospel gives us the power to have a concern for the people that don't deserve it in a new way, like bad bosses or bad authority figures, and good authority figures when we don't want to give it to them. Because when we realize what Jesus has saved us from and saved us to, we are empowered to return to reenact that radical grace and forgiveness on others, especially when they don't deserve it. There's a power given to us in the gospel that no match in other earthly religions or philosophies could offer us. So the last point for today is for the glory of the gospel. We are called to submit and to serve for the glory of the gospel. We're reminded again and again and again that our reason for the behavior that we're called to is to bring glory and praise to God, like we talked about, the one who actually deserves it. We are freed. Last week, Pete spoke about that, the freedom that we have. We are freed from the burden and constraints of needing to achieve our own justice and exact justice on our terms. In other words, put another way, to uh, the burden of needing to defend our glory. 
We don't think of it like that probably, but that's a constraint in our life. In the gospel, we're given a hope in the true justice for the glory, in God's true justice for his glory. Let's look at the, ver- at the end of verse 23. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So let me answer this real quick. There's, there's nothing wrong with valuing justice in this world. That needs to be addressed. I'm not saying that, that we just forget about justice and just trust it all to God. That would be incorrect. It's an innate part of who we are. It's part of the image that we bear of God. When God created us in his image, he gave us the ability to understand and appreciate justice. And we all know that there is a sickening amount of injustice in our world today. And the church is called absolutely, more than anyone, to be called into that mess and to advocate for the justice of the innocent. So I'm not saying that trusting in God's final justice gives us permission or means disengaging from working for justice on earth. But what I am saying is that we are called to respond to our own sufferings and injustices in a way that tells a different story. When we respond to our sufferings and injustice, we tell a different story. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So what this shows is the intersection, kind of the the place where man's perception of things and man's plan uh, coincides with God's plan. That's where they agree. So when we suffer because we deserve it, in a sense, we're not preaching anything radical when we submit to the consequences or the discipline. Because we agree, and God agrees, that wrongdoing should be punished. I mean, can we all agree on that? We have that sense in us. But then if we look at the second half of that verse, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's where the two narratives, the narrative of our world and God's narrative, differ dramatically, differ radically. Our cultural narrative says that the world and our existence is all about ourselves. It's entirely what you would call, the word for it is anthropocentric. So anthro meaning human and centric meaning centering around human life. That is the basis for all of our identity and all of our efforts in in the story of of our world. That we are the end-all be-all. Ourselves, our lives, and our glory. Because of that, Deep down, we have this primordial urge to exact our own justice. I think we can all relate to that and feel that, the defensiveness that comes when we feel attacked. Our reputation is really all we have. And so because of that, it must be defended and worked for and maintained at all costs in order for us to maintain and have our value, let alone any sense of lasting value beyond this life. We are intensely about our own glory because we really have no other option. But consider this. When you don't deserve the harsh treatment and you still submit humbly with respect and you endure in a godly, gospel-centered way, 
your behavior tells a completely different story than that, like we talked about earlier. You tell God's narrative, not the story of the world, but you tell God's narrative, which is what we were saved for and called for, to tell his story. You tell the true narrative, not the anthropocentric narrative, but the, the theocentric narrative, the, the narrative that revolves around God, that all that happens is from God, through God, and for God. It's all for him and about him. And so when we trust and rest in his plan, his wisdom, and his justice, or his judgment and justice, we are so compelled by this story that it leads us by faith to submit and respond to authority in a profoundly free way. We are freed from the burden of the world's story and free to let our behavior and our reasons for living and our efforts not point to ourselves, but to Him. We are pleased now at this point to, to point to the amazing story of our redemption, that He willingly submitted Himself to suffering, even to the point of His death on a cross, and was raised to life, achieving the most glorious eternal outcome possible. This is the story we are invited into through the good news that Peter's proclaiming. So because of the gospel, in the pattern of the gospel, in the power of the gospel, and for the glory of the gospel, go and be gospel-centered servants and submission, in submission to your earthly leaders. Serve them humbly and respectfully to tell this story. Let's pray.